This episode is brought to you by Content Multiplied. It's not a secret anymore that content creation is really important, but very few people talk about the importance of consistency. And I myself have really struggled with that consistency. And for that reason, I looked for a solution and uh, Content Multiplied was a really good one for me. Since using them, I've been able to focus on what I enjoy the most, which is recording podcasts, while Myla and her team are really taking care of everything else. Whether you have a podcast, you're holding keynote speeches, you're doing a YouTube series, you're writing a blog, a newsletter, a book, the Content Multiplied team can really take whatever you're producing and repurpose it into a series of micro-content and suddenly you have dozens and dozens of pieces that can be shared for you and Content Multiplied even takes care of that for you. Unlock your content superpower with Content Multiplied and go to contentmultiplied.com today. That's contentmultiplied.com. Thanks, Smyla, and uh, let's go into the show. You are listening to Impact Hustlers and I am your host, Michael Schaffrath. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself, by joining the team of one, or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. In today's episode, I speak to Dr. Christian Bush, renowned author, researcher, and an authority, I think, on impact-driven entrepreneurship. Christian is the director of the Global Economy Program at New York University, where he teaches purpose-driven leadership and impact entrepreneurship. He's also a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and the co-founder of Leaders on Purpose and Sandbox, a sandbox Network, uh, two, I think, of the most renowned communities really bringing together impact-driven leaders. And I'm so passionate to have a fellow community builder join me that's been there and done it way before I even thought about community building. Um, so really excited to speak about that a little bit. But today we will mainly speak about Christian's book that he published in 2020, a book called The Serendipity Mindset. Uh, the book shows how entrepreneurs and change makers can leverage the latest scientific insights on serendipity for their day-to-day -day work. Very practical advice. I really enjoyed reading it. So um, uh, very excited to have you on the show, Christian. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. And I'm so glad that you uh, seem to have gone through COVID with uh, you know lots of smiles and, and good energy. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I did relatively well. I was pretty bad for two days, but that was it. Uh, then I recovered very quickly, which was good. So um, i excited to do this finally. Um, so the first thing I want to start with is it feels like you're really a community builder at heart. That's uh, kind of, uh, you've been a community builder for quite a while uh, as the co-founder of Sandbox Network, uh, Leaders on Purpose as well. And I'd like to cover in the beginning a bit your journey from community builder to academia and researching more about the signs of serendipity. So give us a bit of an overview of your personal journey. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, you know, in a way, meaningful connection is, is at the 
at the core of, of everything I do. Um, and, and the reason really being, uh, you know, I used to be that kid in high school who I was kicked out of high school, had to repeat a year, probably held the unofficial world record of how many dustbins and trash cans you can knock over on your way to school when you're driving. And then one day wasn't so so lucky anymore and crashed into four parked cars, uh, all cars completely destroyed, including my own. And the policeman who came to the scene, he was like, oh my God, he's still alive. And you know, that idea that I was supposed to be dead, that stuck with me. And I asked myself all these weird questions, you know, if I would have died, who would have come to my funeral, who would have actually cared, was it all worth it? And at that point, I had only depressing answers. And so it took me on this intense search for meaning, trying to figure out what is life all about. Uh, you know, if I would die tomorrow, like, would it have been worth, you know, next time? And uh, so what I realized, you know, and, and actually, I read a book that I highly recommend, especially in times like the one we live in, uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is all about the question of how do we find meaning in crisis? How do we find meaning in the toughest of circumstances? And when reading that book, what I realized is what I find meaning in is connecting people, connecting ideas, seeing how they fit, and and that spark that comes from meaningful connection. And so that kind of set me a lot on, on that route of trying to build communities um, and companies, and then in academia, trying to you know connect those dots together. But Michael, what I found fascinating on this journey is that the most purpose-driven, inspiring people, they seem to have something in common, which is that they somehow intuitively cultivate serendipity. They intuitively see a little bit more in unexpected moments, then they connect the dots and then turn that into positive outcomes. And so I got really fascinated by this question. How can we develop communities, mindsets, and companies that allow us to have more of this kind of unexpected good luck? And for you, what came first? Was it uh, community building and then learning more or about serendipity while you were building these communities and learning about it? Or did you really spend a lot of time learning about serendipity before you said, okay, I can now leverage that knowledge to create serendipity for others and, and those communities that you've built? Well, it, it actually serendipitously came out of uh, one of the communities we, we built. Um, so Sandbox uh, Network, which, which um, you know, we, we set up kind of... Um, Uh, around 2007, uh, 2008. And, and uh, you know, the idea was, hey, how do you bring people together who in their respective fields are pushing the boundaries, um, who are being considered crazy in a way in their field, but mindset-wise, um, they have so much in common with people in other fields, but they're connected in their own fields. And so how do we create a home for those people that they don't feel crazy anymore and, and feel like, hey, there's a community for me to um, make, make big stuff happen. And so what fascinated uh, me at some point was that, You would go to a dinner there of people who have similar values but very different ideas and you would go to a dinner and from every corner, every couple of minutes, you would hear something like, my God, such a coincidence, such a coincidence, such a coincidence, such a coincidence. And so what I found fascinating is how in a way that was implicitly an accelerator for serendipity. And so at some point, we jokingly called it actually a serendipity accelerator without thinking a lot about it. And, and what I found interesting over the kind of years now is that both in my own life, it's become a personal life philosophy and daily practice, like to have serendipity. And that's what makes life in a way meaningful and, and joyful, uh, even in, in times we live in. Um, but then also, you know, it more and more came out of the research, you know, from wherever, you know, I do a lot of work in, in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, in India and China, and everywhere, serendipity pops up amongst like people. Uh, and so the question was really, is there an underlying theme for that? But so that came serendipity. So um, first out of the community building. Amazing. Um, uh, all right. Uh, we haven't actually really covered what serendipity is. And you covered in the beginning of the book, where you define what serendipity means. Uh, um, so um, I'd love you to cover that a little bit, and especially the relationship to luck, because I think sometimes people confuse both. And uh, how, how, what is serendipity? And how does it relate to luck? 
Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, usually when we think about luck, we think about things that just passively happen to us, right? So being born into a loving family, stuff like that, we can't really pick. Um, but serendipity is about smart luck. It's about the luck we create ourselves through our own actions in how we react to the unexpected or how we create the unexpected. So it's it's either making accidents meaningful or creating meaningful accidents. And so to give you an example, you know, um, imagine you have erratic hand movements like I do, uh, then you spill a lot of coffee. And so imagine you spill coffee over someone in a coffee shop and they look at you slightly annoyedly, but you sense there might be something there. You don't know what it is. You just sense there might be something there. Now you have two options, right? Option number one is you just say, I'm so sorry. You walk outside and you think, ah, what could have happened had I spoken with a person? Option number two, you start that conversation. That person turns out to become the love of your life, your co-founder, you name it. It's the point that our reaction to that unexpected moment, making that accident meaningful, that in a way creates the serendipity. And a lot of times it takes time, right? Like it's not enough to just bump into that person. You got to go on different dates. You got to turn that into the, the ultimate serendipitous outcome. But the, the fascinating thing, Michael, is that once you look at serendipity as a process, that's always the same. Like you can look at serendipity stories from around the world. It's always the same process of something unexpected happens and then individuals do something with it. And that differentiates kind of serendipity gain from serendipity missed. Like what do we do with that unexpected moment? Got it. And um, tell us, give us some examples, um, uh, especially how this is relevant for entrepreneurs. Uh, also in, in the book, you bring a few examples uh, how serendipity has led some to, to some great things. So give us some examples on how yeah, serendipity helps entrepreneurs and how they some of the best entrepreneurs out there are leveraging serendipity. Well, it's a great question, right? Because if you think about it, up to 50% of innovations, inventions happen serendipitously. So in a way, if you want to kind of push the boundaries, like a lot of times it comes from actually spotting and, and connecting the dots, um, you know, necessity-based, you saw during the pandemic where breweries realized unexpectedly, oh my God, we can use our alcohol to produce hand sanitizer. So they connected those dots and became hand sanitizer companies, stuff like that, where you can turn whole companies around, you can turn products around. But you know, one of my favorite um, examples here um, is the potato washing machine, because the potato washing machine shows how much it is about how we approach the world and that we get away from this idea that we have to plan everything exactly out. You know, I grew up in Germany um, and, you know, the education system obviously was always telling me, hey, you have to have a plan. You have to map everything out. You have to know everything. And then you go out in real life and you're like, Jesus, like nobody told me that there's so many things I can't control. And so I think what we have a lot of times is this illusion of control, right? That, And then we get anxious when we don't have everything under control. And then what you would see is, you know, on CVs or I work a lot with executive teams where if you're the CEO of a company and you go into the boardroom, uh, you usually say, I planned this, then I did this, and then exactly this happened. Even though everyone in this room knows that this is not reality. Reality usually is more like a squiggle, right? Where you plan something, then you unexpectedly heard about an idea, you build it in, and then kind of it's more like this. And so um, one key purpose of this work is to say, how do we get more honest about that? Yes, like we need some kind of North Star curiosity, something that guides us a little bit so that we have a certain plan. Let's make a strategy, but then let's make the unexpected part of that strategy. And so the potato washing machine is an example of this where a couple of years ago, a company in China called Hire, um, you know, they produce refrigerators, washing machines, and they receive calls from farmers. And the, the farmers ask them, you know, why is your crappy washing machine always breaking down? It's, you know, and so they ask, well, what are you doing with it? Well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in it and it doesn't seem to work. 
So what would we usually do? We would probably say, well, let's educate the customer and let's tell them to not wash their potatoes in the washing machine. It's not made for this. It's not part of our marketing plan. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? That's unexpected. But there's probably a lot of farmers in China and in the world who might have a problem in that department. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? And what, what, I, what I'm saying here is when you have a company, a lot of times the most interesting things, the most interesting products, client leads and so on will come unexpectedly. And if we do simple things, like for example, in the weekly meeting, ask something like, what surprised you last week? Then we can spot those potential serendipitous moments and we can then build them into our plan. And instead of looking weak that we didn't plan it, we actually create a corporate culture that makes it possible to have those kind of new things happen. Got it. Um, and the examples you gave so far, I think they're very much about the mindset, you know, as, as the book already suggests with, uh, with the title, but uh, really about the mindset of serendipity to weave it into your daily life. And when you encounter situations that maybe looked at as a bad situation, really look at it from a different framing. So th that's one. Um, the other one I'm interested in is more like, how do you actually engineer serendipity and create more serendipity than what like your average life already throws at you? And especially the question around there's like a whole serendipity industry out there on conferences and networking events and social networks and communities. And there's millions of those, right? So as a founder, especially with very restricted time, You know, uh, is it the answer to kind of go to, to as many conferences as possible to get more uh, serendipitous moments? Uh, how do you avoid that from distracting you? Uh, I guess there's loads of questions, but I guess the short question of this is how can you engineer serendipity, but also maybe in a lean way that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you're, you're only uh, kind of touring conferences 24-7? Yeah, it's a great question because I think, You know, this is a lot about quality versus quantity a lot of times. And, and you know, uh, instead of going, I think it depends a little bit where we are in our life cycle, right? So if you're just starting out, you don't have social capital yet, then by any means you go to more conferences, right? Because you have to get more exposure, you have to meet more people, you have to put your idea more out there and so on. And then the more you kind of like become senior, the more selective you are with, you know, hey, this community is probably giving me a bit more than this community. I think what's really interesting is to to... I'm always a big fan of stepping back and saying, what is really important to me and what are the meaningful communities that could really be part of my journey at this point? And, and then kind of like plug into those communities. And then I think the question becomes how to plug into them. And I'm a big fan of, of the hook strategy, for example, where the idea is that you're casting a couple of hooks, you put a couple of dots out there where other people can pick them up and then kind of like really kind of, you know, That's where the unexpected client leads comes from. That's where the unexpected partnership comes from. And so the hook strategy works like this. Someone who does that really well is Ollie Barrett in London. Uh, he's a technology entrepreneur. And if you would ask Ollie at a conference, you know, hey, um, you know, what do you do? Like the question that puts people into boxes, but everyone asks it. Um, he wouldn't just say, you know, I'm a technology entrepreneur. He would say something like, I'm a technology entrepreneur, recently started reading into the philosophy of science. But what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential hooks where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I recently started hosting piano sessions. You should stop by. Oh my God, such a coincidence. My sister is teaching on the philosophy of science. You should give a guest lecture. The point is I'm a big fan of writing down <clears throat> what are two or three key themes at the moment. Do I want to expand into Poland? Do I want to 
hire five people, whatever it is, and then seed that into every conversation. In my case, for example, I'm seeding into every conversation. I want to take that mindset into every school and every organization that, that has me. And so kind of I'm seeding that everywhere. And the more we do that, the more it's amazing where from the most unexpected of places, someone might be like, oh my God, yes, like my brother used to work in Poland, like I should put you in touch, right? So those kind of things, especially also with the people we know, like in the teams we work with, we can sprinkle that in. And that's where serendipitously a lot of these things happen. So I think it's those kind of practices that allow us to have more serendipity. I love that. I think especially because we so often, traditionally speaking, we define ourselves by our past. You know, I graduated from uh, University X and, you know, my current job title is this or I'm working on this right now. But yeah, what what the example you gave with Ali, which is yeah, the I think the most networked person in the UK, uh, definitely, um, um, or one of the most ones, and um, is a really good one because you're suddenly weaving in things um, that you typically wouldn't mention, and you may weave in things about your future, right, where you aspire to be. Um, super valuable. Thank you. Um, so um, obviously you have a background, especially supporting impact-driven founders, change makers um, across the world. You talked about the work in sub-Saharan Africa as well. Um, do you think there's a particular importance for impact entrepreneurs in terms of serendipity? Is there like is it even more important to them than to others, or what? has been the connection between serendipity and impact for you? I love that question because, you know, to me, one of the biggest mindset shifts happened when I started to work in Kenya and, and, and South Africa. That was around 10, 10-ish years ago. And I still remember um, someone who now has become a very dear friend of mine. When I arrived, I, I asked, what should I never ask you? Me, the person coming into your context who, you know, assumes that I have a lot of solutions, but actually probably don't know a lot about your context. And he said, never ask me first, what do I need? Because that puts me into the role of the victim, of the beneficiary of someone who needs your benevolence versus if you come in and say, hey, what's already here? What can we do together? Then you can still think about resourcing. You can still think about impact, but we do it on the same level. And, and to me, that was a real kind of changing um, factor to say, you know what? A lot of times people who focus on impact focus on things like lower needs, right? Hey, Let's give people better nutrition or better education or stuff like, you know, important things. But actually what people really, really want is dignity. They want, they want to have like, they want to feel meaning. They want to feel that their life is worth something. And, and I think, uh, you know, to give you that example um, where, where the link to serendipity comes in, there's an, an organization I've been working with called Reconstructed Living Labs. And Reconstructed Living Labs, they have a low-cost education model where they come out of the Bridgetown area in, in the Cape Flats in Cape Town, um, you know, very rough community. Um, they came out there and said, hey, let's do a very easy methodology where 10 steps to use social media to build your business, 10 steps to, um, you know, create your own thing, whatever it is, like very simple education methodologies. And what they do is, because they don't have any resources, they go into other resource-constrained communities. And instead of asking, what do you need? They ask, what's already here and how can we make the best out of it? So then they look at an old garage and they see, oh, wow, that could be a training center. They look at a former drug dealer and they say, oh, wow, that could be a potential teacher. If we can turn that person around, they will be resourceful. They will um, you know, have amazing social capital. And if you can turn them into a teacher, you can turn a community around. And so what, kind of like what I've seen with this organization and related organizations is people can create their own smart luck and that actually gives them their dignity. So 
as an impact entrepreneur, instead of going in and saying, here's resourcing, here's this, it's about saying, how can I enable people to create their own luck? Because that brings them the kind of meaning and that idea that, hey, I can create my own luck. There's there's a lot of dignity that comes with the idea that you can create your own luck. And I think with the mindset component, there's always the structural inequality component, right? In terms of saying, people like us, we uh, you know have access to education networks and everything else. Someone in the Cape Flats and Cape Town does not. And so how do we also then work on the kind of structural framework around this, but also realizing that, hey, especially people in this context have a serendipity mindset a lot of times and actually are far more resourceful than many of us. And that model, actually, um, they've taken that into other contexts. They've taken that, for example, into banks where they say, instead of just firing people when they don't need the ATM person anymore, the, the cashier, uh, think about how that could be a financial trainer. And maybe the bank could be a financial training center. And so the point being, that kind of shift in thinking, I think, comes a lot from those kind of contexts where out of necessity, you have to make the best out of what's at hand. Mm. How how elitist is serendipity? Like a lot of serendipity or opportunities for serendipity is behind closed doors. You know, if you attend these uh, these conferences, the expensive conferences, or let's say even if you just live in Silicon Valley or you live in London, you're in these places where you run into a loads of exciting people. And maybe if you're kind of in a rural area cut off from, from uh, a lot of kind of international um, uh, visitors, for example, you may have a little bit less serendipity or you may only run into locals all the time. Do you, do you feel that's a problem? And what's kind of, how accessible is serendipity really? I think it's a huge problem. I think it's a huge problem that our base levels of potential serendipity are very different, right? Like us sitting here, you know, in, in quote unquote hot spots and like having communities around where we can just plug in and out, our potential for potential serendipity, even if we have the same mindset as someone in the Cape Flats, is obviously kind of, uh, you know, exponentially higher. And so um, that's why I'm such a big fan of thinking about how do we create serendipity spaces for people, especially in less kind of privileged backgrounds. And so what I mean with this is, I think a lot of organizations, for example, focus on education. Well, that's great. But if you put a kid from a less privileged background into a school, they still come home and have high stress levels. They still come home and don't have the connection when they need the job now to actually get that job and things like this. And so I'm a big fan of really thinking holistically about all these areas and saying, how can I enable those people to have more luck in their life by, for example, okay, if I give you a scholarship for this university or for this school, where are three mentors that I can directly give you so that you have your own community that can help you then lift you up as soon as you need the job, as soon as you need other things. And so I think it's, to me, a lot about democratizing the access to potential serendipity by saying, how do we think about helping people with community, especially, right? That's why I like your focus on community, because at the end of the day, it's all about, like, a lot of this is about people, right? Like, who are the kind of people with whom you can connect the dots, who can help you out, who can do things with you, and, and so on. Um, so I think there's a huge um, uh, component to that. H having said that, Michael, I think the beautiful thing is, and that's why I love that work, especially in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in every context, you can see people who have that mindset versus not. And then I think at the same time, we want to like remove those structural constraints. But I think in, in a way, hopefully that work will be part of democratizing that also, especially for people who might not have been used to it. But at the same time, also think more holistically about removing structural barriers for people who might be having very different base levels. Got it. Um, in the book, also, you speak about the importance of a North Star to help leaders become purpose-driven. Um, so give us a bit of an uh, outline of what the North Star means and how entrepreneurs can 
entrepreneurs and general leaders can implement it into their day-to-day. Yeah. Well, that mostly came from, so we did a couple of studies with CEOs, especially of large companies that try to make them more purpose-driven. So, you know, CEOs of companies like MasterCard or so who say, hey, I want to take a traditional company and then integrate profit and purpose and, and somehow understand how we can leverage these capabilities to make a bigger impact. And so we sat down with them. And one of the key themes that came out of this was that the most successful CEOs have one thing in common, which is that they are extremely, extremely good at having some kind of sense of direction where they say, if I'm MasterCard, I want to get 500 million people who were previously unbanked into the financial system now. And um, here's an approximate strategy. So they have a certain sense of direction, a certain north star of where they're going. And they said a particular, like they say, okay, this is the strategy to get there. But I'm already telling you now that we will adjust that strategy based on your information coming in. And so what they do is they have a sense of direction, but also make the unexpected part of the plan versus, you know, the old school leadership is that you essentially just say, um, I know exactly what I want to do. I know exactly what, what what's happening. And then as soon as new information comes in, you have to adjust and look weak. And, you know, to give you an example there, um, I was so fascinated when when COVID happened. And when COVID happens here in the United States, you had two types of governors, right, of people who are running the states. The, the one type had the old school leadership style of saying, um, hey, uh, here's an exact timeline of, of when we're closing, when we're opening up again. And then exactly on this date, we will open up. And that's it. That's the old school leadership style. You try to control everything. You try to have an exact timeline for everything. And now when new information comes in about hotspots or stuff, you either look weak if you adjust the timeline or you essentially have an incentive to hide the data, right? Versus the new type of leadership skill uh, uh, type is to say, hey, how do, what is our North Star here? The North Star is to have, um, you know, good public health and good kind of economic health for the state. Um, here's an approximate strategy. So funny enough, the same timeline as the others. But we're already telling you now that based on these North Stars, we will actually adjust the timeline as soon as new information comes in. Now, when you're adjusting the timeline, when you're adjusting your strategy, you look strong because you told people from the beginning you would do that. And now actually they feel, oh, he's a responsible leader. She's a responsible leader. And so the long story short here is I think that's the same for running small companies that at the end of the day, you can pretend that you have it all figured out. You can pretend that you know exactly everything. But actually what's much more important is having the North Star, so a sense of where you're going together so that people feel that sense of belonging, that sense of like, oh yeah, we have something in common, some common purpose. Doing a strategy that's related to it, but then also from the beginning saying, let's adjust that strategy as we learn more. If people use our washing machine differently, by any means, let's make that part of the plan. And that actually then is real leadership and, and let's go of this illusion of control. Hi, it's Michael here. I want to interrupt this episode briefly to make you aware of two exciting things that are going on here at Impact Hustlers. First of all, if you are a founder solving social and environmental problems and you're looking to connect to like-minded founders like yourself, you're looking to learn from some of the most experienced entrepreneurs, experts, and investors in the world, and you want some support in actually fundraising for your startup, we've built the Impact Hustlers community. We are now about 100 entrepreneurs and founders, and we're growing every month uh, with more founders from all over the world joining us. And we're really here to support each other. And our goal is to build the most supportive ecosystem for impact-driven founders. So if you're a founder, head to impacthustlers.com community to learn more.
And if you're not a founder, but you want to work for impact-driven companies, we have also recently launched something really exciting for you. And that is the Impact Hustlers Talent Collective. This is a group of some of the most ambitious and talented individuals in the world that want to use their talent to make a difference in the world and work for some of the most innovative, impact-driven companies. If you're keen to join the Talent Collective, this is all free of charge, obviously. Uh, you can submit your application to the Talent Collective on impacthustlers.com slash jobs. And what will happen as a result is that companies will start approaching you through our Talent Collective and share job opportunities with you. We'll also share our weekly jobs update with you where you see relevant jobs in the field of impact, including from all the previous podcast guests. So you will actually uh, see opportunities from companies that have been covered here on the show and also companies that are members of our Impact Hustlers community. So go to impacthustlers.com slash jobs if you're looking for a job or if you're a founder and need some support, go to impacthustlers.com slash community. Okay, let's get back to the episode now. Mm, got it. I, I can relate to this a lot because Impact Hustlers origin story is a little bit um, serendipitous as well. Like uh, it basically started just by actually when I first worked at Wira, which is a startup accelerator here in London. Um, um, my my boss challenging me, okay, you should put yourself out there. Come on, like do something, right? So first of all, that was a little bit serendipitous around uh, him and me uh, uh, being in the same room at the right time and him having this idea. Um, so I started with the podcast, but then through that, really learned the need from entrepreneurs uh, for for more community, especially impact-driven entrepreneurs, um, uh, and then ran into people that were keen to co-organize co a summit. So uh, if you look back, really, I think most people would really realize how important serendipity is. Um, and uh, I recorded an episode with Sir Ronald Cohen, who's like one of the pioneers in impact investing uh, a while ago. And he, I mean, he he did call it luck, but I think like the, the concepts of luck and serendipity um, were like key in his life as well, like really small moments that are completely defining. And I think the exciting bits is where these small moments define like entire generations, new technologies, uh, new paths for humanity. And you can look at, look at that in the world of medicine where loads of medicines have just been discovered by accident, right? Um, so quite exciting and uh, not another question, but like it's uh, exciting, exciting to see. Do, do you see like uh, there is something um, that uh, let's say politicians, policymakers can do to um, push society towards more serendipity for good. So uh, how can we kind of make sure for people to, uh, you know, for entire uh, countries uh, to to kind of push more in the direction? Yeah, that's a great, 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 great question. And I think, Michael, to your point, also your earlier point with, with uh, Ronald Cohen and others, you know, that's the fascinating thing. We've seen the same in, in those CEO studies, for example, where when people narrate their history, they a lot of times say there was hard work and there was luck, right? So very different things. And I think what's fascinating then is when you reflect with them, at some point they're like, oh my God, yes, I worked really hard to have more luck. And, and I think that's kind of in a way, to me, the fascinating thing, I think, and in your life also, right? Like you've been connecting the dots. I mean, from what I've seen, like you're constantly connecting dots, right? And, and, and you're working really hard to connect those dots, right? It's yeah, like you're alert, you're connecting people, you're connecting ideas and so on. And yes, it's lucky, 
the particular moment, the particular outcome are lucky, but you made it more probable that those luck moments would happen, right? And to, and, and to me, that is actually, um, you know, let me give you, there's a lot of experiments actually, and then I'll, I'll, I'll answer your question about the government, but there's a lot of um, experiments how we can very easily, in a way, um, have more of this by literally just opening our eyes to it opening our eyes to how likely the positively unexpected is but we're missing it all the time and so in this one uh, example and actually everyone who's listening to this I, i'd love you to to um to reflect if, if you consider yourself to be lucky or unlucky just as a kind of question do you consider yourself to be a lucky person or an unlucky person and and the reason i'm asking you this is that if you consider yourself to be a lucky person it is more likely that you will be luckier in the future just because of the way you will look at the world and the way of how you are spotting opportunities. And so to, to give you an example um, experiment, there's a lot of these kind of experiments. In this one experiment, they took people who self-identify as very lucky. So people who say, good things tend to happen to me, yada, yada. And people who self-identify as very unlucky. So people who say, bad things tend to happen to me. I'm always in accidents and so on. And we all know people on that continuum, right? And, and so um, they pick one of each and they say, walk down the street, go into a coffee shop, grab a coffee, sit down, and then we'll have our conversation. What they don't tell them is that there's hidden cameras alongside the street and inside the coffee shop, that there's a five-pound note, uh, so money, in front of the coffee shop door, and inside the coffee shop, there's one empty seat next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big dreams happen. Now, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five-pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, they have a conversation, exchange business cards, potentially an opportunity coming out of it. We don't know that part. The unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five-pound note, so doesn't see it, goes inside the shop, orders a coffee, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, that's it. Now, at the end of the day, they ask both people, how was your day today? And so the lucky person says, well, it was amazing. I found money in the street, made a new friend, and you know, potentially an opportunity coming out of it. The unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And, you know, the fascinating thing is, so I find a lot of money in the street because I expect it to be there. Unfortunately, mostly pennies, so it doesn't really change my lifestyle. But once you start looking for the money on the street, you start seeing it. Once you take another street to work in the morning and you look actually at the street, you might see this bookstore where there's this one book and you might think, oh, my God, that could be a podcast. Once you're reading differently with like the idea of, hey, can I connect some dots here? You tend to see it more often, I think. Michael, that's where it gets really exciting, I think, also in terms of neuroplasticity, right? The way our brain can, we can reframe our brain by really like, like consciously thinking about how can I connect the dots in different moments? Uh, can, I, can I relate this to something and something else? And so, so that makes it much more likely. Now, how do we take that to the macro level of, of organizations and, and, and governments? You know, I feel a lot of this comes to the question of how do we develop serendipity fields for people? How do we develop these kind of opportunity spaces where people can help each other connect more dots, bump into each other more often, um, but in, in kind of meaningful ways and, and so on. And so we've done some work with the government, for example, around public spaces. Like how do we rethink public spaces in ways so that people have an incentive to talk with each other? Um, for example, if you have art in, in, you know, Burning Man has been really good at this, where when you go to Burning Man, this kind of, um, you know, thing in, in the desert, um, they are very conscious about where exactly do we put art so that people, when they live, for example, in a tent here and in a tent here, in the middle, they would put art so that people who cross from one tent to the other briefly stop in front of the art. And then they have an excuse to talk with someone next to them because they can say, 
doesn't this look strange? Why does it have, why does, it, does this have such a big vagina? Like why why is this the case? You know these kind of things where it's a little bit shocking. Those kind of arts, for example, and that kind of then sparks conversation, right? And so the the, the, the long story short here really is that at the end of the day, there's a lot of smart ways how we can build in stimuli, right, in some way or the other into public spaces that kind of make it more likely that people interact. But also, more broadly, for governments, we can think about how do we reform the education system? Like, you know, the education system I was in, I was kicked out because nobody gave me the opportunity to actually connect more dots. Like, I wanted to connect more dots, but um, it wasn't possible. So it's the education system where we can think a lot about and then more broadly, I think there's a lot about policymaking. Like when you think about how policy is being made, it's so focused on thinking you know a lot about the world or grant making, right? Those of you in the room who have ever tried to get a grant, like it's so focused on the solution, but actually solutions pivot, they change. And so if you're forced by a grant to go through with a solution, that can be harmful versus if it would be more focused on the problem space and saying whatever you come up with within this problem space, we will fund that actually would be so much more impactful. And so it's those kind of things where it's really shifting the mindset away from this centralized, we know everything approach to know how do we trust local communities and enable them to, to really work on this and, and let go of this kind of know-it-all type mindset. And I think especially in the education system, we're still suffering from our past in terms of education systems being designed for the industrial age where you don't want people to have this mindset, right? You want them to be reliably executing one task and that's it. You don't want them to kind of go off the track and do something else. Um, so I think huge challenges ahead. Um, I'd love to give the opportunity for anybody in the audience to raise their hand. You have a button at the middle of the screen where you can actually join the live call-in. So we'll be able to see you and hear you. Don't be shy with that. Uh, uh, I see Pooja, you already commented uh, a bit. Uh, Pooja is one of our... Uh, community members, uh, uh, postdoctoral researcher at Stanford, uh, a neuroscientist, um, and just uh, basically starting her company now to get um, people's behavior changed around climate change. So basically helping people make more sustainable choices based on neuroscience. So Pooja, if you're, uh, if you're up for it, uh, join us on stage if you have any question or just even I uh, want to showcase how the role of serendipity for you, um, feel free to join. Um, or anybody else as well, um, feel free to uh, drop a comment in the chat um, or raise your hand. So, Pooja, there you are. It's no no pressure on you. <laughs> there we go. Hi, Pooja. Thanks for joining us. I think it'll take a second until your video is live. There we go. How are you doing? It's in the middle of the night for you, isn't it? Um, not super late, 10, 10 p.m., um, nice and symmetrical. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, it was really insightful. And um, I was thinking, again, this is an aside, but um, I kind of have this strategy um, that you were mentioning about leaders, you know, kind of not being less rigid about the about about their plan or strategy and like leading room for serendipity. That's kind of my traveling approach, you know, have a basic plan, but leave room. And I have had so many amazing experiences precisely because I was open to deviating and um yeah so that really um um you know rang rang yeah rang a bell um well let's see i was curious about what is the role of you know features right of uh, like you know extroversion or you know you know optimistic versus pessimistic sort of outlooks on you know serendipity because it seems to me that you know, I mean, I'm extroverted. I'm more likely to, for example, like chat with a stranger. Um, 
but people who are shy, I, I feel like that might get in the way. And I'm wondering, do, would that predict that? Is it a, do you over how do you overcome that? And also, does that maybe suggest that people who are more extroverted <laughs> are are luckier? I mean, not a deep question, really, but like I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. No. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. And and, uh, and what a cool intersection. No neuroscience, climate change. I mean, uh, a lot of impact to be had, I guess, at, at that intersection. So um, looking forward to com- continuing that conversation. Also learning a lot from you, probably. Uh, around those themes but uh, to, to your point like two things came up um and and um i loved your point around the traveling i think to your point whenever we're traveling then we have a bit more of this beginner's mind right because we're a bit more like oh let me learn a little bit more about like wherever i am now versus when we're in our day-to-day we might have more the kind of functional fixedness um kind of being in our autopilot type mode and so i'm actually a big fan of 90-day experiments where the idea is how can i do something similar that I would be doing on traveling with a new curiosity or new interest, or let's say you work in a bank and you always wanted to build up this impact venture, um, but you never had time. Well, how can you make 5% of your time and then literally take that beginner's mind and plug into different communities and travel, even if it's just virtually. But um, so Puja, I loved that you said mentioned travel as this, because I think we can also travel without actually having to be on the road. And I think that's kind of in a way allowing us to also open our mind more towards um, serendipity in, in so many different ways and then of course traveling itself being super helpful to a second point i think that's a great one um also in terms of you know i'm a closet introvert i'm the kind of person i had that conversation recently and i don't know mike michael if you, if you relate to this but i had that conversation with other community builders and people always think we're so extrovert right because we host parties and we host all these things but then we're hiding in the restroom because we have to replenish our energy and so we're we're closet introverts so we're closet introverts have spikes of extroversion and then again like we are like okay let the party go on and I take myself out of it. Um, and I think deeper psychologically, actually, maybe there's also something that when you host these things, you know you can take yourself out of it without then not being part of it. So I think also there's probably deeper emotional things around why community builders are attracted or why introverts are attracted to community building in, in some way. But I think that's a whole other conversation. But what I found fascinating is, you know, in a world that's designed for extroverts, how do you survive as an introvert? Because yes, to your point, it is more likely, right, in some ways to have serendipity because serendipity a lot of times comes from interaction with others, right? Um, being that if you think about the most interesting inventions or, um, you know, this conference thing where you bump into someone, something interesting happens, those kind of things are interactions with others. Um, I think there's two things, though, that give introverts hope. One is um, that, uh, you know, a lot of serendipity comes from quiet sources, from calm sources, reading a book, seeing that book in the bookstore, thinking that could be a podcast, those kind of things that are quiet sources. And I've become a really big fan of thinking about how can introverts leverage extroverts in the sense of if you, for example, have a new, like in your case, a new cool venture idea, and if you were an introvert and would be going to a dinner party, the first thing being to talk with a host and like get the host excited about the idea because that person will then walk around and talk about the idea. And so essentially, it's really about how do we leverage extroverts to, in a way, do the work for us and that, that we don't necessarily uh, want to do in, in that regard. I've had that with an insurance company last week. So the idea was, look, they go to, to let's say, a university and they want to sell an insurance to uh, different people. They don't have to go to everyone. They just have to go through the super nodes, like the people who uh, people ask for advice or the people who people trust the most. And if you if you go on them, and then it spreads much better. And I guess climate change is a, is a great area for this, right? How do you, in a way, you, you, you don't have to convince everyone individually. You just need to find these super nodes who then kind of go into their own communities and, and do that much more credibly anyways than any of us could. Right? And so I think there's a lot around this. But Pooja, um, I think like you probably have a lot of thoughts. Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I love that you said that because um, I'm actually, so as Micah said, I'm building, well, um, I'm building a community, a, a platform that is consumer facing um, and it's, it, it's targeting uh, folks who are high levels of climate concern and, you know, which op- often, you know, turns up as, you know, anxiety or despair because most people feel pretty powerless and how can we empower them to, you know, exercise or channel that anxiety into action that is impactful. And, um, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> um, but, um, one of my, so part of my go-to-market strategy is to, is to identify, uh, folks in different, on different social media who are thought leaders and who have a lot of influence in the sort of climate, climate conversations. And, um, the goal being that, that network effects that start with these nodes, these super nodes, um, are, you know, they're going to be more powerful. They are connected to more people who have like similar interests and are also their, 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 their approval, I think, might be powerful as well, uh, for example. But um, yeah, um, oh, I, I want to clarify, I'm not a neuroscientist, I'm a cognitive scientist, very close. So neuroscience is the brain and cognitive science is like mind, higher order reasoning, but um, very much using my background um, to try to hack um, behavior change scale. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I should I should know this by now. Sorry, sorry for that. It's okay. It's very common, very common, common um, uh, misparse. Um, I should also say, uh, in 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 the context of this this conversation about serendipity, so this is a comp- thing I'm building now. It's evolved a lot in the past six months, but it's something I've been thinking about for about three years. And I had to get to a moment in my personal career life. Um, I, I lived in the U.S. for almost fifteen years, where I could not do the safer thing where I decided to take the plunge and you know what, this is it. I'm going to do this thing I wanted to do anyway. And it, so it was, it came this thing that is good, is, is so meaningful to me and it was absolutely the right decision. I wouldn't have, I, it, it originated from a place of um, like discomfort and, you know, it seemed like a really bad situation, but I, I turned it around and, and looking back, I already know. Looking back, I might be grateful that this bad situation happened because I'm living, I'm building a life that is very much aligned with my values and much more worthwhile in terms of you know work. You know, my effort is worth it in this case. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, I totally, totally with you, and it's kind of helpful to hear what you're saying today because it reminds me that there's always that silver lining and that, you know, yeah, looking for opportunities, yep. <laughs> and it's such a great, um, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of Viktor Frankl's kind of um, theme around, like, do you let the situation define you or do you try to define the situation, right? In terms of, like, this whole idea that, yes, we cannot always pick the situation we're in, but we can always pick our response to it. And, and I think, you know, when when looking back on life, I think for most people, there will be some kind of inflection points, right? Like being at car accidents, being at having faced cancer, being at, uh, breakups in love, like things like this, right? Where in the moment, um, and, and if it's terminal, of course, this is something you can't turn around and you can't really, but even then people saying, okay, then, you know, how can I use this as a campaign to at least kind of do something um, that instills some kind of meaning in it? And so I've always been extremely inspired by this Viktor Frankl approach of um, that at the end of the day, 
most of the world is socially constructed, right? Most, like everything, it's just made up, right? I think one of the things that COVID showed us is like all these assumptions we've had about the world and like that you can always travel and stuff like that from one day to the other just might be gone, right? And and so I've always been a big fan, Viktor Frankl, when he was, um, you know, he survived the Holocaust. He was in a concentration camp or several. And you can imagine that's the toughest of situations. Like there's like objectively no meaning it's a completely meaningless situation to be there from 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 your perspective and and societally of course as well and 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 so in this kind of situation he said you know what i will still create a meaning in this in this meaningless situation i will still take power and so what he did was he said i will speak with a fellow prisoner every day to make them feel better and now i have a reason to wake up tomorrow morning because actually i still have to talk with so many people to make them feel better and i also still want to write this book and so he built this duality of meaning into that crisis and i've always found that inspiring because i'm very let you know i had two near death experiences in life and it's made me realize how quickly life can be over at any given second and so i operate a lot from this perspective of kind of pre-mortem like what is something i would regret not having done and how can i do this now um and i've always been super fascinated by those of you interested, there's this kind of deathbed regrets where a nurse asks people on their deathbed, what do you regret? And it's always the same stuff, right? It's always, I wish I had lived a life truer to myself. I wish I had built more kind of, had spent more time with the people I really love. So it's things we all know, but we all think like, oh yeah, no worries. I still have so much time, but we, we might not. And so I think it's, it's kind of to your earlier point, like really kind of thinking about those crisis moments. Is there a teachable lesson here? Is that, is that a teaching moment? And you know, at the end of the day, from a long-term perspective, a lot of times these become inflection points for something beautiful. It doesn't feel like it, right? In the moment of a breakup, for example, it feels like, oh my God, the world's going down. This was the one person I was aligned with and now they're gone. But actually, maybe that had to happen so that you find your true love, right? Those kind of things where it had to set you free in that way and so on. And that's the same people who lose their job, right? And then set up the one company they always wanted to set up. Stuff like that were the inflection point being really crucial. And so that's also why I feel that mindset. Um, you know, I had a psychologist recently kind of reaching out and saying, hey, look, like this helps me decrease anxiety with my patients because it takes away that pressure that there's only one way that's true and that there's one way. Um, and it always reminded me of, um, I had this amazing mentor once um, uh, and he said, look, Christian, people like you always think there's only one way to roam the city. Um, and then you realize you don't even want to be in Rome. And and to me, that always stuck that like, yes, you know what? We, we stress ourselves so much that like, this is the one thing, the one track, the one this. And then you're there and you realize, you know what? Who cares? And so I think that's really the thing that a lot of things that we pressure ourselves with are so socially constructed that we can also deconstruct them. And I think that's kind of uh, also why I'm so fascinated by everything that has to do with like cognition, um, how we can reframe situations and everything else, because it's so much just made up in our mind, you know, and, and self-limiting constraints that are there. And so um, I think there's a lot of that. So, so thanks so much for, for your great insights, Pusha. Sure. I would love to talk another time, actually, because I also have like, yeah, this is be really fun to talk about. Yep. <laughs> Amazing. Um, thank you so much, Pooja, for tuning in. Uh, seems like everybody else has been a bit shy, but uh, uh, and we do need to wrap up. So I will leave it at that. But uh, I'm glad we had a bit of a discussion beyond just a question, which was great. Um, I'd like to ask you one more question, Christian. Um, and Pooja, feel free to drop off if you if you like. Um, just if you could do me the favor of uh, leaving this window open for a little bit, so we keep your question saved, if that's uh, if you don't mind. Um, so you can uh, basically uh, uh, stop the live call in, but leave the window open. That would be great. Um, so, Christian, one more question I, I, I got for you is um, 
uh, around one practical tool that entrepreneurs and founders can start using if they want to have more serendipity in their life uh, what is one practical thing that founders can do to to make that happen well look i'm a huge fan of doing very simple things like the way you ask questions like do you ask people the kind of what do you do question that puts people in the boxes or do you ask what do you enjoy doing it's a super simple tweak but what that does is instead of someone getting on autopilot and telling you i'm building a business in the solar industry and blah blah they might be like hey i've always dreamt about how we can uh, build a world that's kind of like 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 carbon efficient blah blah and then someone like puja might be well wow like i'm working on climate change i could fit into this versus if you're just saying i'm building a solar like you know what i mean like it's kind of it opens you the the opportunity space when you're um asking slightly more open ended questions and then kind of like, you know, at the same time, bring in those hooks when people ask you, to me, those kind of things are the most effective ones, because you can have that in every conversation, every conversation, you can always plant these dots and ask people for their dots. And so I'm a big fan, if there's one thing you take from today, doing a kind of serendipity journal, or just like a white page, and stepping back and saying, what are a couple of themes that I care about that feel meaningful to me that that if I would be on my deathbed in, you know, in a few days or weeks, that I would feel like I really want to do this now. And, 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 and then kind of really bringing that into conversations. And then from the most unexpected of places, someone might be like, you know what? You always thought it would be such a great risk to build XYZ thing, but we already have a funded business that does exactly this where you could join as a co-founder and we can scale it up together. So the point here is that in our mind, we always have these assumptions, you know, oh, if I build a new startup, for example, it's so much risk and da da da. Not if you do it with someone who already kind of maybe went through a couple of trenches and like did something X, Y, Z, where they already have something in place where you can just join and help scale it up, things like this, right? And so I think it's it's really kind of understanding the potentiality of everything once you put out there what feels truly meaningful, a key curiosity, whatever it is. Um, I'm a big fan of this. And, and, you know, it really comes back to, Michael, this kind of deeper philosophical, you know, I grew up in Heidelberg where we have this philosopher's way and Goethe and Schiller and so wrote their poems there. And Look, a lot of this was about that, like the way you look at the world, Goethe had this beautiful thing around, if you take someone as they are, you make them worse. But if you take them as who they could be, you make them capable of becoming who they can be. And that's what serendipity is about. Serendipity is about potentiality. It's about what could be there in yourself, but more importantly, as a leader also, how do you bring that out in others? And I think that's kind of really a lot of the things about uh, we talked about are about how do you bring the best out of people and out of yourself so that when you are on your deathbed, you're saying, okay, well, you know what? It was worth it. That's an amazing way to end the podcast and amazing advice. Thank you so much, Christian. I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I learned so much from just this episode from uh, somebody that's not just an academic, but also practitioner uh, at heart and uh, somebody that's really aligned with what we're trying to do at Impact Hustlers. We're really early, early on in the journey. Um, but thank you so much. I learned a lot from you today and uh, appreciate you. Thank you. No, thank you so much. And, and Michael, I think you're a great example, right, of someone who is constantly connecting dots and, and making those things happen. And, and uh, you know, kudos for doing this. And, and thank you for having me. And great to meet everyone. Looking forward to, to keeping in touch. Um, I'm LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, so happy to continue that conversation as well. Um, thank you. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned some valuable lessons from today's guest. I want to share two things with you. First of all, if you're a founder, 
and you're solving a social or an environmental problem with your company, there is something that we've launched recently to support founders like you and to introduce you to more founders that are like-minded and that are solving very difficult problems in the world. And that is the Impact Hustlers community. It is a community of over 100 founders that uh, solve problems like climate change, education, the crisis in healthcare, and really pushing the boundaries on what's possible. And what we do as a community, we connect to each other, we run mastermind groups uh, where you can connect to other entrepreneurs and founders. We bring experienced investors, entrepreneurs, and experts in to run workshops and Ask Me Anything sessions. And you can also connect to others in our online community. Uh, and we have something for those of you that are actually fundraising. We have an investor matching tool where you get introduced to relevant investors based on the startup that you are building. But it may be the case that you're not a founder and you just want to be part of the change and you want to join some of these companies that you've learned about here at the Impact Hustlers podcast. And we've got something for you as well. We've recently launched the Impact Hustlers Talent Collective. This is a group of some of the most ambitious individuals in the world that want to make a change and an impact with their careers. And you can join the Talent Collective, obviously completely free of charge. You can apply to it. And we will introduce you on a regular basis to companies recruiting people like yourself. Uh, so you'll get access to exclusive job opportunities uh, from uh, companies that have been on the podcast, but also beyond that. So make sure that you go to impacthustlers.com slash jobs if you're looking for jobs in the social impact space. Even if you're not actively looking right now, you should still sign up and be part of our talent collective. And if you're a founder, don't forget, go to impacthustlers.com slash community. Okay, thanks very much uh, for listening and bye. See you at the next episode. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.